This morning we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I want to just uh, amen what Terry has had to say as well, those of us who have been to Israel. Um, I think the closest we ever got down to the Gaza Strip, even with a uh, uh, metal reinforced bus and supposedly bulletproof windows was probably 15 miles as close as, as we ever ever got. Those folks live in constant danger and uncertainty. Um, but that was uh, what happened uh, at, at this time is uh, it's just evil. Regardless of whether you agree with me in eschatology or not, um, I, I think worse things are ahead for Israel personally. I think the scripture sets that forth. But we should have compassion. When you think about, I saw the statistics this morning that at least 600 Israelis are, uh, have been murdered. Now, if you compare that to our population um, and what happened at 9-11, if, if that percentage happened in our country, that'd be like 20,000 people were murdered comparatively because Israel is much smaller. So we want to pray for them, and uh, I, I pray as well along with Terry, that they would have a proper uh, military response. They have every right uh, to defend themselves against terrorists. And frankly, if that can happen there, with what has happened across our bor southern borders, um, yeah, there's, n there's no uh, assurance that similar kind of things can happen here. Secondly, I want to I want to say that I'm pleased to announce I should have said it before um, that we have uh, taken uh, Trevor on staff. We're, we kind of, as elders, wonder what should we call these guys because they're not technically elders, but they help us shepherd our our people. So um, at first we called them uh, uh, ministers of. I think teaching and discipleship. Maybe it's better to call them pastoral assistants. Um, Dylan will head out uh, Tuesday and be flying back to uh, the Shepherd's uh, Seminary for another uh, set of his doctoral classes, be out there about 10 days, and then he'll have to do the same thing in the spring. And then I think that's your last class. And then... He gets the easy part. I'm being very facetious. <laughs> that he gets to write his dissertation. So we are we are thankful for the progress that he is he is making, and we're thankful for Trevor. Um, he's a very gifted, bright young man. He finished his second master's there at the end of August, and was thinking about going in the Ph.D. program. And I'll just I'll just use my expression, his tongue was hanging out and <laughs> needed a break. And so um, he's in the process of this year kind of pray for him that the Lord will have wisdom 
give him wisdom and direct his steps as well as he looks down the road and say, okay, what exactly does the Lord uh, want me to do? Um, we took him on as part-time, but probably I dump on his plate full-time responsibilities, so I will try and listen to that young man when if I overload him. Um, thank you again for just being part of my church family. We will not get to uh, verses about the family of God this morning. I will, if I can get to the episode on, uh, really unusual episode there of the demon that leaves a person and comes back. Um, I am reminded as I read scripture there is so much that I do not know about what is going on in the spiritual realm. I am told more about what I ought to do to protect myself and to protect you, take up the full armor of God, be a person of prayer, take up the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one. But we live in a, a world where we do not see the external um, manifestations as much as we're looking at in the New Testament period. But the Bible makes it very clear, nonetheless, they have not resigned in saying we hold up a white flag. The uh, demonic world is just as hateful uh, and as active as it has ever been. Lord, we look to you this morning. We are thankful for grace and mercy. We remind ourselves that's exactly what we are, a people who have received grace and mercy. We come to you not on our own merit, not on our own deserve. If we got what we deserve, it would be an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. So thank you for the Savior who came, lived a perfect life, died for guilty sinners, and says, come to me, come to me, all you who labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We thank you for the assurance of that promise, and that we who have fled to you have found the rest, rest from our sins, rest in Jesus Christ. So as we continue to study through the Gospel of Matthew, we pray that you would take the word of God, help us to understand it, Believe it and obey it for the glory of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have labeled this section, Hard Hearts Continue the Confrontation with Jesus. If you look at the parallel accounts in the synoptics, it's not only the Pharisees and it is not only uh, the Sadducees, the Herodians, but it's also um, there has been a superficial um, uh, turning to Jesus in that generation. When I say superficial, because as we look at it this morning, we say, I, I know the Bible fleshing this out in larger theology, there's always a people of God. Even in the days of Noah, 
when there were just eight that were saved. There's always a people of God, and that includes in the current uh, generation that we are looking at. But we're going to see that Jesus not only responds to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the scribes, but also to the people as well as an evil and adulterous generation. But I'm going to start with thinking about signs, because that is still a huge topic today. People want signs. They want to know from heaven, is this the right thing to do or is this the wrong thing to do? Verify me or whatever. I want a sign from heaven. Um, I see uh, supposedly um, an image will show up on a rock or a ceiling, and people flock to these things as, as maybe it has the appearance of what they think is the face of Jesus, and uh, they flock to that. I want us to evaluate, first of all, um, the purpose of a sign, and that even the sign itself, if it comes to pass, you have to evaluate whether that was still from God or not. We know from the Old Testament in particular, if a person claims to be a prophet from God, and he says something, and he prophesies, and it doesn't come to pass, you know what? He's to be stoned. He's a false prophet. But also, I want, I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 13, and if you're not there, if you'll turn there, and then we will look at some examples, and then we'll come down to the New Testament, because this is the passage this morning that starts out. They demand a sign. What is right about that or what is wrong about that? Now, in general, I would say this. Most signs are initiated by God, not upon the request. God gives signs, supernatural indications, revelation from heaven that what he says is true. But there are occasions where people request a sign, and sometimes God graciously grants that. Now, you will hear believers occasionally talk about putting out their fleece and going back to Jephthah. I do not see that as uh, a pattern to be followed. God graciously answered Jephthah, but I would say by the time you come down to the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18, it says this, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I go to Scripture, and I understand what God has said and trying to line my heart in light of that. And sometimes I don't know what to do for sure, so I pray for wisdom. But just because there's an open door doesn't mean you should walk through it as one of my mentors reminded me periodically, uh, an open door could be an elevator shaft. You step into it, and there's no elevator, and down you go. So I'm, I'm going to begin here at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Remember, this is a rehearse, a restatement of uh, Torah right before they go into the land. Verse 32 of chapter 11. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. 
If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, that means something miraculous, and even if the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, ah, but you have to evaluate what he says as well. If he says, let us go after other gods that you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Did you catch what this is about? He can give you some supernatural event or sign, and it actually comes to pass. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's from God. You have to evaluate. What is that person saying? Why? For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. This is a very critical passage when we think about signs and wonders. Um, now, I just turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 34. I'm going to how this uh, works out often. I'm not going to go through all. It, it would take us a series to work through uh, the signs and the wonders, and, and God did give some to Moses, and uh, they were both for uh, Moses, the people of God, but particularly for Pharaoh, and he hardened his heart. So in Matthew chapter, I mean 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, we uh, preceding back in verse 17, uh, or I'll start in verse 12, the sons of Eli, namely Hophni and Phinehas, they were, in Hebrew, B'nai Belial. They were sons of worthlessness. They weren't sons of worth. Why? Because they didn't know the Lord. And who were they? They were priests. They were supposed to be offering uh, sacrifices, and uh, they were to share, uh, be given food from the people. And we read in verse 17, they didn't follow what God has to say. The sin of the young men was very great. It's not only great, it was very great in the sight of the Lord because the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Further, verse 22, they also committed adultery at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, there was something constructed around the tabernacle uh, in some type of complex about that. And we read, we read later on that they were married men, and yet they were sleeping. I mean, this is so egregious. Remember, we're just coming out of the period of the judges when cycles, things going down, down, everyone does what is right in, in his own eyes. And um, Eli kind of reprimanded them just slightly, Boys, this isn't good for what you're doing. No, they, they, they should have been taken out and removed. And they wouldn't listen to their father. Notice 
the end of verse 25, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And we see God raising up the prophet Samuel. But if you turn over then to verse 34, um, judgment is going to fall. And God's going to give a sign to them, to Eli and to the people, that judgment is about to fall. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. So there it is. God gives the sign, and he's going to put them to death because of their wickedness and their sin. And the sign is it's going to happen both on the same day. And later on, if we follow the text, we would see that. Then I'm going to jump, bypass a lot. The, the evaluation of the sign is this. Does it relate to a right worship of God or a lack of it? And here it relates, God is showing that the word that he is saying that both of them are going to die in the same day, you evaluate this sign, you evaluate it according to truth and what has taken place. Now, jump forward to 1 Kings chapter 13, so we're beyond the time of uh, Solomon, and we come to the divided monarchy, and we come to Jeroboam. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins. Of, I'm, I'm in 2 Kings. No wonder that didn't make sense. Let me go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 13. So a man of God, I take it Ahijah, probably the Shilonite, came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Remember what Jeroboam, he was offered that God would bless him if he would do what is right. He goes, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to set up, um, if they go down to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices down there, then I'm done. They're not going to follow me. So he used his own mind to evaluate the situation rather than follow what God had to say. So he set up dual altars and places of worship, one up there at Dan, some of you have stood there and looked at the remains there. Even down in front of that pit, they found uh, bones in there where uh, things had, sacrifices had been offered. And then down at Bethel, and so anybody could come, let anybody be a priest. Why do you have to be so restrictive? Just be all inclusive. And so there he is at the altar, and he was standing to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign. In other words, God initiates this sign, and you're going to know that it's true because here's what's going to happen. 
This altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, he cried against the altar of Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And he got a little uh, um, temporary paralysis there until um, Ahijah prayed for him. But look, the altar was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Right then, the sign took place, but it's also an indication that down the road, there's going to be a son born to a king named Josiah. So I'm just giving those are a couple of examples. I mean, we could go to... Uh, um, Elijah, the prophets of Baal, uh, the fire coming down, consuming the altar, uh, the sacrifices after they poured water on it. But the point is, when a sign is given, what does the sign tell us? Does it tell us about the true, right worship of God? And people who are asking for signs, are they related and really concerned about the true worship of the living God. Now, um, jump over to uh, the New Testament, and I think that helps us there, is what is the reason for the request of a sign? And I'm going to go to John chapter 2, and then we'll come back to Matthew chapter 12. Because some read the text before us this morning and say, hey, what was wrong? with requesting a sign. Well, we'll see what was wrong with requesting a sign. I go to uh, John chapter 2, and remember Jesus has just cleansed the temple. I take there are two cleansings of the temple, one early in the ministry of Jesus and then one later on uh, at, toward the end uh, before um, his crucifixion. Verse 13 of chapter 2, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And he made a whip of cords, drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. And later on, the disciples will look back upon that and they'll remember Zeal for your house will consume me. So, they, the Jews asked the question, what sign did you show us for doing these things? In other words, they want to, the, the, the question has to also be related to, is the sign that they're looking for, is it related, do they just want to know um, hey, we didn't like what you just did, and so what kind of uh, sign are you going to give to us? They demand some miraculous sign to justify a display of what he just did there in the temple. You, if you look at Mark, they were the legal authorities. They had the right to question the credentials of someone who had taken some bold action, but they don't ask why was he doing that? The question has two fundamental errors. 
They don't ask whether the cleansing of the temple and the charges Jesus made were just. They weren't concerned about pure worship and a right approach to God than they were with questions of authority and precedent. And second, if they thought that Jesus was just a rabble-rouser or mentally unstable, who are you to come in and, and do that? They could have taken him into custody. But the fact that they asked for a miraculous signs indicates that at least they recognized they were dealing with one of God's prophets. But the kind of sign that they would want seems to be some, some kind of uh, supernatural event. And, but if the authorities had the eyes to see, they would see that the cleansing of the temple, in a very real sense, was also a sign. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 12, and we see uh, the ongoing confrontation here. Then some of the scribes, the legal experts, now to be a scribe at that time, you had to, uh, looking at Jewish literature, Mishnah later on, uh, the Talmud that was recorded at that time, you had to be at least 30 years of age. And furthermore, you had to have memorized, if not all the Torah, major, the first five books, major sections of it, you were to be the legal expert there on Scripture. And it took a lot of training, a lot of time. And they also had to master all of the Jewish traditions that were handed down. Remember, when you think of Judaism in the first century, they're looking at two areas of revelation. One is what we would call the Old Testament Scriptures. They wouldn't call it old. That, that was their scriptures. And they're also looking at oral tradition, which they believed was handed, given to Moses and was passed down orally from generation to generation until it was finally written down and uh, both are from God. But when you look at them, they both can't be from God. And whenever you take oral tradition over what God has recorded for us, you're going to be in trouble. So they, they ask, um, scribes and Pharisees, teacher, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, this had to be a little uh, sarcastic. Um, they only believed that unless you were had finished their schools, were trained in their rabbinic circles, you weren't qualified to teach anybody. I um, usually begin Latin class. We're, we're still a little traditional. I have them, they've memorized the Pledge of Allegiance in Latin. We start that way, hold up the flag, and then I greet them. Sawe, uh, discipoli, hello, students, and they'll come back to me. Uh, Wale, Magister, hello, teacher. 
uh, magister is a word of teacher, authority. That's what the Vulgate uses right here for teacher, magister. I had my, my grandson, and he was being a little uh, smart with me. And I, I take it in a good sense. I didn't uh, get all over his case, but I said, uh, before I could even greet him, I do Zoom with him and teach him Latin. So usually he knows the rule. We do Pledge of Allegiance, and then I go to greet him, and he looks at me and he says, Sawe discipula. In other words, he said to me, hello, teacher. Not teacher, hello, student, as if he was, he was the teacher. And I go, oh, no. And I think that's what's taking place here when they say, uh, teacher, teacher, kind of dripping sarcasm. You think you're going to teach us? You weren't in our rabbinic schools. Remember Peter and John when they were uh, reprimanded there in the book of Acts by the religious leaders? Who are these untrained men? Um, un, uh, untrained and ignorant. Well, they weren't ignorant people. They just weren't trained in the rabbinic circles. So here we have teacher. We want to see a sign from you. Now, if you flip forward just a couple of chapters, we'll see it again. Chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came. Now watch the reason for the sign. To test him according to their evaluation. Not concerned about real worship. They've already agreed to put Jesus to death. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So he gave him an answer. When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather. The sky is red in the morning. It'll be stormy today. The sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot uh, interpret the signs of the times. Now, this phrase Contextually, the signs of the times is what Jesus is right there. He's the Messiah. You can't even discern that I am here in terms of what I'm doing. And again, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So there's a repetition of what we find back in uh, chapter 12. So all of that to preview the asking of signs. God has given us his word. He tells us to discern what the will of the Lord is. Now, he does subjectively lead us. Um, sometimes life takes a hairpin uh, turn that I had not expected. We need to evaluate our circumstances in light of scripture, and I may think that this was the right thing to do uh, providentially to make a decision, and I find out later on, no, it wasn't the best decision in the world, looking back in hindsight. But to be, to be a people who continually want signs to know what God has to say is faulty. It's a bad way. You need to be a people of the book, a people of prayer, and wise counsel that comes from Scripture. So, just think about it in terms of the words and works of Jesus that confirm the Scriptures. John had questions. Here's a prophet, and he thought about 
Well, I, I was just saying the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Where's the judgment? And so he sends his disciples out. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, yes, I'm going to put the label on me, Messiah. I'm going to tell you the words and the works that I'm doing. You evaluate in terms of Scripture whether I'm not the Messiah. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So, we, we begin this section with the scribes demanding a sign. Think about all the evidence that they had that was available to John. Think about what they had done in terms of the rejection of truth. They couldn't deny that Jesus cast out demons. They couldn't deny that a man is sitting there clothed in his right mind. But they're say, okay, let's castigate the power that he has done that with. Maybe um, he's, let's just say he's doing it by the prince of the demons. This is satanic work. Again, when we think carefully about evaluating signs, what is the purpose of those signs? Well, Jesus is doing words and works that point to the true worship of God in heaven, that he's the one able to forgive sin. Remember the man with the paral paralyzed uh, hand in the synagogue, and he's standing right there, and they're ready to uh, accuse him, pounce on him for doing it on the Sabbath, and he goes, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and go home. There's a demonstration. It's a sign. And they had no answer for him, but put him to death. Repeatedly in 1224, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that he cast out demons. And so there's further warning and rebuke, warning about the unpardonable sin in 12.33 through 37, and yet you come right back and request for a sign. I submit to you their intent was wrong, their hearts were wrong, and that's why we get the response that we have here from Jesus to hard hearts and for seeking a sign. He answered them, an evil an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's already condemned them. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And think about the terminology, an adulterous generation. This is terminology from the Old Testament, and it is one of, in marriage, sex is a good gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God. It's clear in the beginning. And yet, violation, it is one man and one woman bound together in the covenant of marriage. And any violation of that is a heinous sin, not only to one another, but to God and the covenant of marriage. So that 
terminology, adultery, is used of spiritual adultery. In other words, God has caused, called a people to himself, and what are they doing? By committing idolatry, Jeremiah 3, 9, committing adultery with stone and tree. How are they doing that? Because their hearts have left God. So they're imbibing false worship of God, and they are an adulterous generation. Now, at the Babylonian exile, what seems to have been knocked out of the people of God, you don't find them um, creating uh, images of Ashtaroth, of Baal, of that after that, but their hearts are still not right with God. And that's James 4.4, 4. you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? One of my regular habits is to quote this verse to myself. I seek to do it every day. Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. The world there, cosmos, talks about this fallen world system that is in opposition to God. Do not love the world. You know what happens if you love the world? The love of the Father is not in him. And then I become in my heart spiritually committing spiritual adultery. So first of all, there's a direct rebuke. And then second of all, he talks about the sign of Jonah. So I want you to jump over to the reluctant prophet. And I'm just going to start reading in, in verse 1. Just follow along with me. Many of you know this is uh, such a, it, it's a short uh, book. But it also has some very unique aspects. When we think about a, a prophet, we're used to hearing oracles, prophecies from God. But that's not what we find here. We find a narrative. And a narrative is about the life and commission of Jonah and his initial refusal to do what God had to say. Now remember, how is this going to relate back to Jesus himself and how does he use this? So the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now if he's going to go to Nineveh, and he is from Gad Heifer in Galilee. So which direction is he going to go, east or west, if he obeys God? What direction is Nineveh from Galilee? I'm, I'm East, east. And so what does he do? Well, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know where Tarshish is? Most will identify it uh, over near Barcelona in Spain. So what direction is that? West. So instead of going the direction that the Lord wants him to go, he goes in the opposite direction, approximately 1,500 miles. Now, every time you decide to disobey God and you go, oh, look at all the circumstances, everything fell into place. 
will read this book. Think of this word, down. You're going down. You're going down. Watch how the text emphasizes this. So Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And guess what? He went down to Joppa right there on the sea, sea coast. Still got a building there uh, labor, labeled there for the Tanner's house. So, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Boy, all my circumstances are lining up for me. And he paid the fare, and he went down into it. This is no accident what the author here is stressing. Down, down. To go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You know, I, I think everything in here obeys God except for Jonah. The wind and the sea obey him. A great fish obeys him, both to uh, um, swallow Jonah as well as in, in the timing to uh, um, barf him back up on, on the shore. Uh, the only one that do, isn't really obeying God right here in terms of commands, well, the Ninevites who are going to get a message, but it's Jonah. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break apart. And the mariners, the sailors, were afraid. Each cried out to his God. At least they did the right thing. They recognized they need some supernatural help. They just didn't have the right God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. Here it is. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and comfort zone. He had laid down, he's fast asleep. Not heading east to Nineveh, heading west to, <laughs> to Tarshish, found everything seemed to be going his way. Give it a little time. You disobey God, I disobey God. I'm so thankful that sin does not taste the same to us as when we we're unbelievers. But sometimes we may be foolish and think sin, I'm getting away with something. Reread the book of Jonah. This is very healthy for us. And it says, but Jonah had gone where? There we have find it again, down into the inner part of the ship. And so now the sailors, why, how has this happened? They cast lots and uh, it fell upon Jonah and he finally confesses up. I'm the, I'm the problem, and uh, the men terribly afraid. What is this thing you have done? They knew that he was flee, fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he told them. And so he says, okay, I'm the problem. Pick me up and hurl me. You go down into the sea, down down, down. Seems like circumstances initially are good, but when you're disobeying God, remind yourself, you are going down, 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 and be thankful when God brings his disciplinary hand upon us. So you know how many of us he disciplines? Every single believer. And if you don't get the discipline of the Lord, now you need to ask yourself, am I really one of his children? So, they picked up, verse 15, Jonah, and they hurled him down into the sea. 
And the Lord, verse 17, he appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the Hebrew has an article with it, ha-dog. A dog is not a dog. It's a great fish in Hebrew. I don't know for sure if it was a whale. The New Testament uses the word ketos. It could, it could have been a whale, but what we know for sure, it was the word ketos, and dog is used of other large sea creatures besides whales. So I'm going to stick with the text. But it was a sea creature. This is a historical uh, event. The Lord affirms that it's a historical event. It's not an allegory. It's not a parable. This is a historical narrative. And here it is, the point of comparison that Jesus is making. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And guess what? God got his attention. Now some think because of the analogy that Jonah died in the belly of the great fish. I don't think so because I find him praying. And God got his attention. He says, verse, chapter 2, verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. So, verse 10, The Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, I'm doing a little more than Jonah, the New Testament parallel, but I don't want to leave without going to the end of the book of Jonah because up to this point, it's a narrative but the moral of the story, the application, comes right at the end. Finally, you know, Jonah, so he goes in, he preaches a message telling them to repent. They believe God, and they repent. Now, it is also important to look at what um, he said. Uh, verse 4, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Boy, you just read the wickedness the hard-heartedness of the Assyrians. And the people of Nineveh believed God. All he did was proclaim a message of judgment. And they called for a fast. And look down in verse 8. They understood that involved repentance, because let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we not, may not perish. And now Jonah's mad. He's angry. He's angry that they repented. He would like them uh, to get uh, what they deserve. He probably wasn't thinking about what he deserves. And so God made a kikion. I'm, I'm not sure that's the Hebrew word for this plant that rose up, provided some shade. God causes a worm. Even the worm obeyed God. And it destroys this large plant in a scorching east wind. And now he's angry again. And so here's the final. Don't read the book of Jonah without reading this last verse. Jonah, do you uh, do well to be angry? Angry? And he goes, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord says, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor. And you didn't make it grow that came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't even know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And so instruction for us is do we have the bad attitude and especially a limited view of God? Because we're going to see here when we go back to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus pulls out two Gentiles, the Ninevites and the Queen of Beersheba, who believed the message of God. And think about the contrast that they have. They have God in the flesh. He's, he's performing miracles. These are signs. This is an indication that what is prophesied in the Old Testament, sometimes in pattern and sometimes uh, direct messianic prophecy, which are far fewer, that here is God in the flesh, and they are saying, show us another sign. The attitude is wrong. The request is wrong. And Jesus is showing them from the scriptures of the Old Testament. And he's going to give, this is the first time in Matthew we have, I, I would call it a cryptic prophecy of the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, later on, he's going to be more explicit. He's going to tell his disciples, I'm going down to Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes are going to put me to death. And uh, on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter goes, nope. <laughs> and the rest of them are kind of scratching their head. How is this going to take place? So going back to Matthew chapter 12 and... Um, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, not the heart of the earth. So there's the parallel. I would call it a cryptic prophecy that will be spelled out later on. Now, uh, the, the three days and three nights, some say, well, it didn't happen. Remember, any part of a day... It's also considered a full day, and that's how you arrive at the three. And compare the contrast also. There's a behold, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. They repented at the preaching. That word is kerugma. It is the content of the message that Jonah gave. And behold, pay attention. You'll find it in later on. And behold, pay attention. Something greater than the Queen of the South is here and something greater than Solomon is here. So here you have God in the flesh demonstrating by his words and his actions that here is the Messiah. And he has the authority to forgive sin. Stretched out a paralyzed hand, and when he stretched it out, it was healed completely, perfectly, instantaneously. All of those kind of actions. Now, he also uses the Queen of Sheba. So if you'll go back to 1 Kings quickly, and chapter 3. I 
put markers in my Bible so I can find these passages quickly. And then when I go to find them, I have to look them up because I don't know what to do with my marker. Here we are, 1 Kings uh, You say, Pastor, you would lose at every sword drill. You are so slow. <laughs> I probably would. Um, here we are. First Kings chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So there Solomon did love the Lord. There are some qualifications put there. And then you can look at these bookends around the life of Solomon. At the beginning, he loved the Lord. And what happened at the end in 1 Kings 11, he didn't, he didn't do what Deuteronomy says to do. He didn't have a copy of Torah in front of him. He didn't read from it all the days of his life. He didn't pay attention to it. And he became proud. Don't multiply women, silver, gold, all those things. He, well, he did. And at the end, they're going to lead you astray. But he was responsible for it. And so we find he loved the Lord, and then he loved foreign women, not all for uh, uh, like a wife with, with sexual relations, but a lot of those um, alliances rather than relying upon God. Now we jump down to verse chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba. Heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. You know what the name of the Lord is? It's not Yahweh. It's all that God is. She heard about this, this God, this character. Go back and how God revealed himself to Moses there when he hit him in the rock. I am Yahweh, Yahweh proclaimed his name, the Lord compassionate, gracious, a God of grace, slow to anger, forgiving, awan, moral perversity, iniquity, uh, rebellion and sin. That's what she's hearing here when we say uh, the name of the Lord. She questioned Solomon. He answered all her questions. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, all those types of things, she said, the report was true that I heard. Verse 9, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. In other words, the wisdom of Solomon that she came to hear was related to who God is, the name of the Lord. He told her about the right God in heaven above. And so I think we should expect to be now Sheba's down there in southern Arabia. I, I expect, based upon Matthew 12, if you'll turn back there, to uh, find when we get to heaven, that the Queen of Sheba will be there. 
That's what Jesus seems to affirm here in this passage. So what he's using this is, is in terms of when you look back and the light that they had, and here are two Gentiles, and the light that the nation of Israel, particularly the religious leaders, have had, instead of responding to it, they are rejecting it and asking for another sign. And so Jesus says, they will, at the judgment, rise up and condemn you because they had lesser light and they responded to it, and you are rejecting the greater light, the light of the world. Now, four minutes to do the last section. Um, I'm just going to do verses 43 through 45 and do it this way. This is a rebuke of outer reformation without inner transformation. Jerry, when we'd go to the prison and um, guys would finally be released, they paid their time, at least the time that uh, they had been sentenced for, and if they didn't have a change of heart, it's called the rate of recidivism. How many people come back into prison? Because when is a liar no longer a liar? When is a thief no longer a thief? Some will say a liar is no longer a liar when he stops lying. They say, no, he's no longer a liar in biblical terms when he starts telling the truth. When is a person no longer a thief? When he starts working with his hands, providing for himself and having something to share, you have to put off the old sin and you have to replace it with the right thing, and you do that through mind renewal. So I don't under, this is a mysterious passage. Trevor uh, did uh, uh, excellent uh, working us through this morning in the first hour on Route 66, um, working through the 66 books of the Bible. Um, we're only in Genesis 5 and 6, but he did the 6, 1 through 4, if you're familiar with that passage and how difficult that is to try and uh, wrap your head around there and make sure you understand it correctly. Because of Jude and Second Peter, I do see angelic involvement in there. But I read this passage, and I go, just like the Gadarene uh, demoniac, legion was inside of him, remember? How many is a legion? And, and the Lord cast them out. They requested to go in pigs. 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff at Kersey, and the pigs perished. I just go, what? I, how little I probably know about what is taking place right now as I am preaching in the demonic world to try and influence us in the wrong way. So here it is. An unclean spirit has gone out of a person. I don't know. It doesn't tell us did Jesus cast out the unclean spirit or did it leave on its own? And it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, that's pretty interesting. Why waterless places in light of what happened with the flood? I don't know, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, here it is. So a demon was there, and it left, and it comes back, and here's a good picture of reformation. The house is empty. There's no demonic Possession, control, influence, 
the person has reformed his life. He's, he's swept away all the debris, and he's put his life in order. This is, I was told, I never knew my father, but I knew he was a drunk, and my mother would tell me, when you go down to Pacific Garden Mission and you speak down there, you may find your father. You may find your father. You take those men down there, and you give them a new suit of clothes, you clean them up, you give them a bath, and if there's no change in heart, what do they do? They go right back out and in the squalor and the drunkenness, and what they need is the gospel, not a new suit of clothes. Now, we care for people like that, but preeminently, here it is, it takes change. And so it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. I don't take this as a parable. I think Jesus is talking about reality. And there is a hierarchy of demons, and that would seem to be indicated here. And they enter, I'm going to come back to this word, they dwell, they live there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so also it will be with this evil generation. What you need is not a sign. You need a change of heart. What you need is to bear forth good fruit because the heart has been changed and therefore instead of a heart of stone, you have a heart of flesh and you begin to demonstrate by your behavior. Your behavior does not save you. Your behavior demonstrates the reality of the condition of your heart. God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. And we're saved by faith, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So what does Jesus do to this request for a sign? Get a new heart. Turn from sin. Do like they did at the generation that Noah preached repentance. Repent. Not at the preaching of Jonah, but the clarity of the gospel today. We're in bad shape. We can't. We can't pull ourselves up by our books, boot, bootstraps. We must turn to Christ and to Christ alone and believe upon him. The futility of mere outer transformation and the necessity of inner transformation, I think, is emphasized when it says demons enter and dwell there. It is a Greek verb, katoikeo. They live. They reside. They, they take up home there. And then we find in Ephesians 3, Paul is praying for genuine believers. May he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person that Christ will dwell. Same verb. You need something to take the place of a vacancy in your heart. And that vacancy is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he will dwell there in your hearts through faith so that because you've been rooted and grounded in love, you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so you'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. If you know Christ, grow in truth and grace. Pray that prayer for one another. If you don't know Christ, 
your outer reformation that you may think behavior modification, whatever you want to use, is not going to be of any value in light of eternity. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to blame here. I was, I, we were coming back from Tampa, and I had the worst landing on uh, Southwest Airlines I think I've ever had. And so the plane bounced, and I just, you know, I think it gave a knee-jerk reaction to everybody on the plane. And so then a couple of bounces, and then, then we leveled out, and it was a smooth landing. So the stewardess came on, and she said, it wasn't pilot error. Let's blame it on the blacktop. <laughs> so, Dylan, I'm two minute, five minutes over. I'm going to blame it on you for taking more than five seconds. <laughs> and you all will look at me and go, we know that's not the case. Jerry, come lead us in our final hymn.